Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. We are in a sermon series called You Be the Judge, and uh, it's based on the book of Judges. And for those who kind of from time to time might think of the Bible and think, oh, the Bible's nice. The Bible has nice stories that are touching and make us feel good. Probably haven't spent a lot of time in Judges. Judges is more like raw humanity. What does raw humanity look like, and, and how does God intersect with raw, sometimes angry, sometimes evil, hurt, broken humanity? And so we've been talking about in Judges that the book is a cycle. There's a cycle. Right away, there's two introductions to Judges, and one of the points that an introduction is making is that there's this cycle and it says what the cycle's going to be, and then we've been watching it play out in stories in the last few weeks. So the cycle is that there can be peace in the land. The Israelites, they're the people that believe in God, that follow God, that are, that are trying to uh, live in the ways of God. There's peace in the land, and they're following God. But then they start following idols. They start following the peoples, the gods, the, how everyone else is living. They're following them. And then at a certain point, God brings judgment. God brings, usually it's the form of another group of people that comes in, the same gods that they are worshiping, he just gives them over to those people. And their life becomes bitter and hard, and they cry out in distress. They cry out in anguish, and God sends a judge, a deliverer, a savior, someone from among the people comes and rescues them, and then peace is restored in the land, and to one degree or another, they start following the Lord again. That is the cycle that we, we have seen. And last week, the last few weeks, we talked about Gideon. That was a cycle that happened in Gideon's life. And then at the end of Gideon's life, when he, or after his life, there was a whole huge not good thing that happened with his sons. And then the Bible just says, well, then there was this judge, Tola, and then there was this judge, Jer. Not much is mentioned about them. We're going to pick up now on the next major judge story. And what happens in this is there are four dialogues. There's actually five, but we're only going to get to four of them today. There's four conversations that happen that are all interconnected. And the first conversation is kind of a setup. It's before we get to Jephthah, the judge. It's a conversation between the Israelites and between the Lord. So we're going to look at that. It's Judges chapter 10, verses 6 through, um, well, we'll just start with verse 6. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Asterisks and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, now I'm going to pause even halfway through the sentence just to say, here we are again. They have done evil in the eyes of the Lord. They have served the Baals and the Asterisks, which is shorthand for the male gods and the female gods of the land. The male and female deities, they have served them. Now, it actually expands it. We've heard that, if, we, if you've been reading this, we've heard that over and over again. But it actually expands on that to say, they served the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines and the gods of Moab and the gods of Sidon. They served the gods that were in the east and the north and the west and the south. They, they served, they were, it was filled, they were filled with worshiping other gods. They were filled with doing the practices of the people that had nothing to do with God. They were, it was completely... Um, they were completely influenced by that. The intensity has increased compared to previous stories. Okay? So they no longer were serving God, the Lord, and what is good. They were serving all these other gods, 
and, and what is evil. And because of that, the Lord, verse 7, will go down, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land among the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. So we pick it up again, and the story goes where the cycle has been going, which is, Now the Lord brought judgment. It was in the form of the Ammonites and the Philistines, and it was harsh. They were shattered. They were crushed. They were oppressed. They were in great distress. Okay? Again, this is is at least as intense as it's been, maybe more intense. So maybe the idolatry has gotten more intense, the way they've turned themselves over to evil and to other gods, and the way they have just completely abandoned God. There's a sign it's become greater than it was in previous stories. This is at least, the punishment's at least as bad, or maybe that's becoming greater. Okay, so what do we think is going to happen next? Verse 10, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The cycle continues. Verse 11, the Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Maonites oppressed you and, and you cried out for help, did I not save you from their hands? But... You have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. So here we go. They have, they have um, worshipped other gods. They've, they've turned away from God. They have been crushed and oppressed. They cry out, and we're expecting, here comes the judge. Here comes God saving them again. And instead it says, I'm not going to save you. Go ahead you cry out to all the other gods that you have been loyal to and affectionate for and you live your life for and you, you has your attention. Go ahead and have them save you. I'm not going to save you. All of a sudden, there is a pause. All of a sudden, the cycle doesn't continue like it has in all these other stories. What, why is that? Verse 15. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Now, this, in such a short reading of this happened, then this happened, then this happened, it can seem like, man, God's pretty harsh. They're in, they're in misery, they're in pain, they cry out, and he says, no, I'm not going to help you. That seems pretty harsh to me. But here's the deal. This has been going on for years and generations, and it's not just a cycle anymore. It's a spiraling. That was something else that came in the other introduction to the judges, that the trajectory of where it's going to go in these hundreds of years is that from generation to generation, they may come back, but then the next time they're going to go even deeper into the things of the world, into things that are evil, and they're going to stay there even longer, and they're going to become even more influenced by it, and then they're going to kind of come back, but then they're going to go even deeper. They're going to spiraling down. Instead of the cycle having them ascend towards the Lord, they're spiraling down. So that's what's happening. And what else we figure out in this is they say, they say, you know, sorry, we, sorry, we, we were with other gods again and we shouldn't have been, so please, you know, come help us. But what we see here is after the Lord said no, then they said, oh, okay, well, we'll get rid of, the God, we'll get rid of these gods. So they had said, hey, we did it wrong, but they weren't even going to get rid of their other gods yet. They hadn't even started to worship the Lord yet. They had just said, you know, you know, nobody's perfect, I know I did wrong, can you help me out and make my life better? And it wasn't until God said, 
No, you're, you're still with your gods. You're still trusting them. You're still focusing. So I'll just let them help you. And they say, oh, okay, well, never mind. Now we will get rid of our gods. We will worship you. Just please help us out because life's gotten so bad. And if life hadn't gotten this bad, we wouldn't want anything to do with you, God. We're happy with these other gods, but since life's gotten bad and we know you're the one who helps, then we're going to ask you. See, what is going on here is there, the whole thing is a negotiation. You know, well, God, if you can help us out, if we, we don't want life to be really bad, then help us out, and then we're going to live however we want. And we, whatever we got to do to negotiate, you, we'll do whatever you want, just, just make it better, and then we're going to live however we want. It was a negotiation instead of a relationship and a returning to God and a wanting to follow God. Okay, so that is the first discussion. The first dialogue, the first conversation is between the Israelites and between the Lord. Now, it talks about the Ammonites and the Philistines came to oppress them. So the Ammonites is who Jephthah, the judge, is going to deal with. The Philistines, we're going to see Samson. In the next two weeks, we're going to talk about Samson, you know, the guy that's kind of like Hercules, the guy with the long hair, Samson and Delilah guy. That's going to be the next two weeks. He's going to deal with the Philistines. Now we're doing with the Ammonites. So the Ammonites come in, and they come in, and they're already uh, doing things all over the land, but they come to a specific area that is a tribe within the tribes, Gilead, the Gileadites. And it is, they have invaded there, and it says... The Ammonites are called to arms and gather in this spot. The Gileadites come together. So it's like a call to arms. Like they have a leader. They have a plan. They have a system. They're ready to take them out. And the Gileads are like, someone's here. And so we're all together because we've got to defend ourselves. But we don't have a plan. We don't have a leader. We don't have anything. They're looking for a leader. And so the second discussion is between the Gileadites and Jephthah. Chapter 11, verse 1, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So right away at the first verse, if if we're paying close attention to what's come before in Judges, we're going to be reminded of a couple things. Jephthah is a mighty warrior. Earlier, the last major judge, Gideon, the Lord called him, you are a mighty warrior. Gideon, you're a mighty warrior. Also, last week, Jason talked about the fact that Gideon had 70 sons. He had lots of wives. He had 70 sons because from all his wives, but he also had a son from a slave, from a concubine. And that son's name was Abimelech. And Abimelech got all the, the clan, the region, the town, whatever it was, that tribe of people all wound up and said, hey, these guys are going to try to rule over it. Isn't it better if we're all in this together? And he kills and gets them to help him kill 70 sons. So if you're the Gilead, Gileadites, and you know that story. It's not that far in your history. It's not that far away from you live. You know a story which is, hey, the illegitimate son rounded people up and killed all of his brothers. Now we've got one who's a mighty warrior. We've got one who's a leader. He, we'll see that later, but we also see it right here because once he got kicked out, he had all kinds of people come and he was the leader of them. This could easily happen to us. So whether it was out of fear that the same kind of thing that happened with Abimelech would happen with them, or whether it was just out of pure greed. Hey, we can each get a little more money 
if we just cut this guy out of the inheritance, make sure he doesn't get any of the inheritance, which this happens often that we have family situations, we love our family, we're with our family, but then when it comes time to deal with money with our family, tensions turn to, and the animosities turn into, we're not even going to talk to each other, we're going to fight against each other over who gets a little bit more money or less money. Anyway, one of those things is at play, and they kick Jephthah out. But now they're in a situation where they have their lives, their land, their property, everything is at risk. And they are leaderless. And so verse 4, it says, Sometime later when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me? And drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. So come with us and fight the Ammonites, and, we, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. So their response is, okay, we know we've got the leader. Let's go get the leader. Let's bring the leader back with him. You could be our leader. Won't he be happy to be our leader? He's been kicked out, and now we're saying you can be our leader. And his response is, why would I be your leader? You've kicked me out. You've... Well, you could be the head when, we, when you lead the command. You can be the head of the army. No. Why, why wouldn't you just turn your back on me again? So then they say, well, not just head of the army. You can actually be our ruler. You can be the head of our tribe. You can be over everything afterwards. And so Jephthah, understandably, doesn't quite trust this, but he's a really shrewd guy. So verse 9, Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mitzvah. Jephthah's very careful. He says, Well, if, you, if we go along with this plan... And the Lord, Yahweh, gives me victory. Because if we get victory, it's going to be coming from him. Then are you going to be? And by calling that in, he's basically saying, if I win and you double-cross me again and you kick me out again, you're actually fighting with the Lord. And they pick up on this and say, no, we're going to, we, you know, we'll take a vow as God is our witness. We, you will be our head. And he has them. Then he repeats it all in front of all the people. This is public, this is declared before God and before all people, he's going to be their leader. He has, he has been very thorough in his negotiation to make sure that, that, that that's how it's going to work out. So that's the end of discussion two. Discussion two is between Jephthah and the Gileadites. Here's the deal. When you put those two discussions together, there's a lot of similar things that, is, that are going on. So, I don't know that I'll remember them in order... The Israelites reject the Lord. The Gileadites reject Jephthah. That's how these conversations start. The Israelites are in a helpless predicament. That's why they're crying out to the Lord. The Gileadites are in a helpless predicament. They don't have a leader, and and the armies are coming down on them. So then the Israelites seek help from the Lord in that story, and they return to the one, to worship the one. Then the Gileadites... In their story, in their conversation, they go seek Jephthah out, who they've just kicked out and rejected. Then the Lord, if we go back to the other story, the Lord, they're first like, help us. He says, no. 
When the Gileadites say, help us, come be our head, he says no. They kind of rebuff, they reject the initial thing. That's the same. So the Israelites repent. It's after the Lord says no that they actually repent, that they actually do something and don't just say, oh, sorry. They say, okay, we will get rid of our gods. We are going to focus on you again. And similarly, the Gileadites repent of the rejection of, of Jephthah. Yeah, we did kick you out, but we are gonna, we're going to make you head. The Israelites reinstate the Lord as the one they serve. The Gileadites make Jephthah their leader. So you see, like six, simil- this is not very long stories, not very long discussions, but you see like six things that are pretty much, th- what the Bible is doing is it's inviting us to compare these stories. There is something about how uh, The Gileadites are interacting with Jephthah, their relationship with Jephthah, that is similar to how the Israelites are interacting with God. And I just listed those out. Now, as it invites us to compare these things with all the similarities, we should also notice if there's anything different. And there's one major difference. Here it is. Jephthah agrees to help based on certain conditions. He wants full assurance that he's going to be head. And only when he gets full assurance that he's going to be head does he go with them. Meanwhile, in the other story, it says, the Lord can bear Israel's misery no longer. The Lord cares about the people. Jephthah is making sure he's okay. He cares about what's going to happen to him, and he's making sure everything's going to be okay with him. The Lord, we see, cares about the people. They're really half-hearted in their allegiance to him, and they're returning to him, and their repentance to him, but he just cares about them. He can't bear their misery no longer, any longer. Now we go to discussion three which I'm not going to read. There's a whole section of Discussion 3. I'm not going to read it, but here's what happens. Discussion 3 is between Jephthah and the king of the Ammonites. Now, Jephthah comes out, and what we see from this outcast, supposedly, is just a nobility, is a, an, an ability. He is acting like a king would at that time. He is able to speak really well, and, he, and he, he's very official, and he sends language, okay, he dresses him correctly, and he says, now, why are you invading our land? And the king of the Ammonites' response is, you stole this land. This land really belonged to us, and so now we're just coming and taking what is rightfully ours. And Jephthah responds with three arguments. He gives a historical argument He gives a theological argument, and he gives a legal argument. He says, historically, in great detail, if we were to go back and read through it all, in great detail, he says, no, actually, here's what happened. We came out of Egypt 300 years ago, and we were going this route and this route, and and we tried to pass this way, and it was these other peoples that came and attacked us, and then when we defeated them, we had the land. That's the historical, accurate part of it. Now, theologically, he says, when they attacked us, the Lord gave us the victory. Yahweh gave us the victory, and he says at one point, you take what your gods give you, the land your gods give you, and we, what our God gives us is what belongs to us. That would be the normal language of the day. They would equate belief in the gods to who has what land and who wins which military victories. 
So whether Jephthah, that's how Jephthah thought completely or he was just speaking their language, he's saying, what our God gives us, that's what belongs to us. What your gods give you, that's what belongs to you. And then he says, and by the way, you claim that this is your land, but really, we got it from the Moabites when the Moabites were the ones who attacked us. And now that you've taken over part of Moab, you think this is rightfully yours, but you haven't come to lay claim to this for 300 years. If it was really yours, you would have come claim to this. This is rightfully ours. So he speaks all that really well, and here's the one verse I'm going to read from the discussion. Verse 27, at the very end, he says, I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Let the Lord judge. I think this is an interesting, this doesn't really get used throughout Judges. Let the Lord judge. Judges talks about these human judges that the Lord raises up, that the Lord puts his spirit on. But here, this judge, this leader says, the Lord is the judge. The series is titled, You Be the Judge, and one of the reasons is, what we see throughout here is God taking people, sometimes the least likely people, and saying, you be the one who bring people back to me. You be the one who drives out evil. You be the one who delivers. You be the one who, who brings restoration. You. And then he uses the people that they wouldn't think. He uses the one that's, that's left-handed, that doesn't have the, the strength. He uses the one that's the weakest and the smallest of tribe. He uses the outcast like Jephthah. He uses women throughout the thing when women weren't, weren't seen as people who could lead and who could, could do things like that. God again and again picks people that we wouldn't expect, and he says, you're the judge. You're the deliverer. You're the one who can bring good. And he might be saying the same thing to us. You even with your limitations, even if you be the judge, you be the one that helps, you be the one that brings good. At the same time, and what the, these last few weeks of this series might point more to, is judges is trying for us to realize, like, you be the judge. God, you be the judge. Jephthah says, may the Lord be the judge between us. I think I'll probably get to this in future weeks, but just a little note now is that in the Old Testament, when it talks about the Lord's judgments, which it does a lot, it is typically seen as positive. So in the Psalms, in the prayers, in the songs that they sang, that God's people sang, they would say, judge, come judge. Your judgments are awesome. We want you to judge. We want you to bring what's right. We want you to make things how they should be. Judge. You be the judge. And Jephthah does that here. Now we move to the last one, the last discussion. Discussion number four. And it has to do with Jephthah and a sacrifice. So he has just had this this. Um, diplomatic thing that comes to an impasse with the king of the Ammonites and in verse and and it ends with the king of the Ammonite doesn't pay attention, blows him off, no so, verse 29 then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah he crossed Gilead and Manasseh passed through Mitzvah of Gilead and from there he advanced against the Ammonites and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord if you give the Ammonites into my hands Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So 
we should be hitting the climax of the story right here in the sense that there has been this sort of, okay, is God going to save? Is he not going to save? Are, are the people, the Ammonites, going to be okay and make go with peace, or are they not going to? It's just been building. The tension's been building, and now Jephthah has the Spirit of the Lord on him, and he leads them in attack, and then he wipes them out, and that should be it, except that there's this little thing that gets introduced. Right before he goes to fight them, he makes a vow. God, whatever comes out of my house when I return, if you give me victory, I'll kill it. I'll burn it up for you. And so now there's this new tension introduced. Like, So he won the victory, so he's going to return home. So what's going to happen there? Verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. Now, this is a little bit, in my opinion, a little bit of a mistranslation. In my opinion, I'm not like a linguist. But as I read other people, here's, here's what it, it says, only child, and that is true, because what follows is he didn't have any other sons and daughters. But really, instead of his only child, what, it's, what the intention is saying so who comes out but the daughter, her alone? Just her. There's not like this sense, because remember, the vow is whoever comes out from the door to meet him, that's who he's going to sacrifice. And there's not this idea like, well, the butler's servant, Jeeves, really got out there, but he's an old guy, and so she, when she's dancing, she just got past him, and so, you know, who, which one is, is it? It is clear. It is the daughter, his only daughter. The only one that he would care the most, like, no, anyone but her, it's her. His response, when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, oh, no, my daughter, you have brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Her response, my father, she replied, you have given, me your, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. She goes on to say, I just have one request. Let me go with my friends and mourn for two months and grieve for two months for them and weep for two months because I'm going to die a virgin. I'm not going to have kids. I'm not going to have a husband. I'm never going to have any of that. So he says, okay. She takes the two months with her friends, and then he fulfills his vow and sacrifices her. That's the end of the story. What are we supposed to get out of that? What is God trying to teach us through that story? There's a little bit of tension. Some, not very many, but some people think that Jephthah was righteous in fulfilling his vow. So here's, let me give a little summary of what I think we can get out of this story. First of all, is Jephthah good or bad as a judge? Yes. Yes. Which is kind of comforting to me. It's not like all or nothing. There's some good things. So the good, he had faith in the Lord. Like, everyone's afraid. This is going on 18 years. No one knows how to be the leader. And he's saying, hey, I'm going to publicly, I'm going to say, 
God's going to be the one that helps me. The Lord's going to be the one that helps me. And he says it to the Gileadites, and he says it to the king of the Ammonite, and he just publicly says, I am putting all my marbles, all my trust in the fact that the Lord is the judge, the Lord is the highest, and if he is on our side, we will win. He has great faith in him. That's a good thing. Do I have great faith in him? Do I have confidence that God is the ultimate, that God deserves my loyalty, that God can do anything Second, Jephthah had a willingness to offer whatever God wanted. He was willing to offer to God whatever he wanted. God, whatever comes, whatever you bring to come out my door, he was willing to offer whatever. And it wasn't just lip service. Because the one thing he wouldn't want to offer, he offered. Those are good things. Those are things that I want to be more true of me, that I would have confidence and faith in God and that I'd be willing to offer whatever God wants for me. Be willing to give up, to sacrifice, to do, to not do whatever he wants. That said, Jephthah did not understand what God wants. He did not understand what God wants. And I'm going to get to that a little bit more in, the, in a moment. He, but... He, but I want you to remember, he, he had good intentions. He was sincere, but he didn't understand. And number two, he didn't trust that God was really concerned about him. God had already given him his spirit. God had already given him what he needed to win the victory, and he felt like, it's not enough. I'm going to have to offer something else. So... Why did Jephthah make the vow? I think there are a few reasons. Reason number one, he was rejected earlier in life. Like, significantly rejected. He was rejected by his family. He was rejected by the people around him. He was rejected in a way that cost him, alienated him. He was rejected. And when we're rejected, that carries on with us until we get healing from it. And so he believed that God would deliver. He believed that God could deliver. But if God didn't, if God rejected him too, he would go right back to that rejection. And sometimes we sabotage ourselves because we are so... In our unconscious being, we have this memory of rejection. And it's almost like we step into it because we think it's probably going to happen again. So he, he, he took what he experienced from people and I think had that like, is that what God's going to do with me? When that's not what God was going to do with him. So rejection would be the first thing. The second thing I would say about why he made a vow was negotiation. This is what ties these stories together, and if we were going to get into the fifth discussion dialogue, it would, it would, it's a theme there too. There is, there is negotiation. So Jephthah thinks, you watch, he negotiated with the Gileadites, he negotiated well with the king of the Ammonites, and now he thinks, before I go, I better negotiate with God. 
I better, you know, that's how it works. Like, I know you're going to need something from me, so if I give something like this, and, and, and this is a big one, this is probably the biggest one of my whole life, biggest one that's even beyond me, so I'm going so to negotiate with you. I'm going to negotiate with you, God. I'm going to make a vow, because then, then, then you'll be obligated. And you'll probably, I'm not sure if you'll do something unless you feel obligated because I've done something. That's not actually how God's heart is. But it's easy for us to think that. And then the third thing would be the worldliness. Remember at the very beginning of the story, it was, they were following the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Moabites, and they're following all the gods. They're, they're living like all the peoples. They are so influenced by the world that that's what feels normal to them, and God's ways don't feel normal to them. So, for instance, if, if Jephthah knew the law, knew the five books of the Bible that were available to them at the time, if he knew that, he would know that sacrificing your child, any child, is an abomination to the Lord. He hates it. That's not what would make him happy. That's not what he would want in a negotiation. It's an abomination. He would know the story of Abraham, who God said, sacrifice your child to test him. And, but when he went out to do it, he said, no, 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 don't do it. And he supplied a different sacrifice for him. He would have known those things. He would have also known in the law that if you make a vow, you need to keep it. If you make a vow, you need to keep it. And that's what he did. But it also says, if you make a vow that is evil then you can get out of that vow by making a different sacrifice. But he wasn't well-versed in the ways of God. He wasn't well-versed in that. He was well-versed in the history. If we had read that part, he knew every detail of what had happened in their journey from Egypt. to He knew the history. He knew how to negotiate. He knew a lot of things. But what was true in, that, in those cultures that time is, if we really wanted something from the gods, we have to sacrifice something, including sacrificing humans. Sacrificing babies, it happened all the time. Is there, are there any ways in which what we, how we operate now is just based on what's normal from all the people around us, what's normal and what we take in? I'll give you one example. Marriage living together. It is normal now. It is, let me say it this way. It is surprising now when a couple comes to me and wants me to do their wedding and they're not living together already. That is the exception, not the norm, including Christian church-going people, because that's what's normal in the world. Now, I can give you a hundred other examples that have to do with how we view money, how we view uh, uh, foreigners or outcasts or compared to how the Bible talks about aliens. I can give you all kinds of examples. But the statistics say, as of like a year ago, this is the statistic for millennials, but I think this is just as true for us, but... 20 to 1 for Christian millennials, for millennials that say we follow Jesus, 20 to 1, the content we take in, is this insane amount of hours of how much we take in from screens and digital, is non-Christian. Now, if we, now, I don't think it's just millennials, if we just keep taking in what the world says is normal with barely knowing what this says then, we, then it will feel natural to do things that are actually contrary to what God wants. But what God wants is what's best for us. He doesn't want us to sacrifice our only daughter. But we will sacrifice all kinds of things that are bad if we're living like the world does. So, let me conclude with this. 
The Lord was looking for reconciliation, not negotiation. We, there is negotiation, negotiation, negotiation. It says, look at this story. Here are the Israelites, and they're talking to God, and they're doing negotiation. Here's Jephthah and the Gileadites, negotiation. But there's that one little line. He could bear their misery no longer. He didn't want negotiation. He wanted a relationship. They didn't have to get it all perfect and right right away, but he wanted them to actually want relationship. Not just like, what do I do to keep you happy so that my life can be good? And that's what he wants for us. He wants relationship. He, he has concern for us. He cares for us. So we're going to pray. I'll have the worship team come up. We're going to pray with that in mind. Praise you, God. We thank you that you are not about us just keeping all the rules. You aren't up there just checking on any little thing that we would do wrong or right. But you have concern for us. You see us. You see what's hard. You see where we're hurting. Not just us as individuals, but us as a whole people. Us in all our relationships and in our families, you see it and you have concern for it. And you have a desire to make things right. I thank you that there's an ocean of mercy and patience and love that you invite us to jump into, to swim into. And so we do want to offer something to you. We want to give you what you want. Not so that you'll do what we think you should do, but because of what you've already done. Because of what you've already got promised for us. So in these moments now, as we sing and pray to you, would you wash over us with your love would you reconnect us through Jesus would you speak to us and would you bless us even as we seek to bless and honor and give thanks to you in Jesus name amen